Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. I never thought that I'd be able to build a Lego set on my own, ever. It was a pretty simple hope. 13-year-old Matthew Schifrin wanted to build Legos. This long, awkward pause. And I said, well, we, we looked at the pictures and we followed the directions and we built it. Matthew couldn't see the pictures that guided every other kid as they built Legos. So Matthew developed a transformative workaround. So, you know, we're achieving one of my main goals for this podcast, which is to, you know, talk to what I would describe as, you know, super interesting people who just happen to be blind. Now in his 20s, Matthew is a student at the New England Conservatory of Music. Beware, listeners, beware. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on the Dangerous Vision podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, you know, at the end of the podcast, we generally ask folks some questions, and one of them is to tell us your uh, best ever story. My theory is that, you know, I'm not a very good interviewer because it's just, this podcast is the first time I've ever interviewed anybody. And so, no doubt, a skilled interviewer is fantastic at eliciting people's best stories, but I don't have that talent. Uh, so then I just try to uh, shortcut the process by just saying, well, just tell me the story that if I were a great interview, I would have squeezed out of you. Um, in this case, rather than waiting for the end, I thought we would start because, I mean, look, obviously, I don't really know what your best story is, but uh, I know the story that I saw you tell on YouTube about Legos and how you got involved, and it was such a fantastic story. If you've got better ones, I'm eager to hear those, too, but maybe we could start off with that one and go from there. Sure. So, first story starts off, it's my 13th birthday, and my best friend Lilia comes over, and with her, she carries this big cardboard box. This big fat binder. And when I say fat binder, I mean yellow pages. I mean Oxford Dictionary, Encyclopedia Britannica fat. And so I look in this big fat box, and inside there's an 825-piece Middle Eastern Lego palace. And then in the big fat binder, there are these instructions that Lita brailed by hand on a Perkins brailer, letting me know what kind of Lego pieces I needed, where they should be placed, and how to orient and place them, and repeating this information, giving it to me over and over for every single step until the step was built. Now, I, I may have failed to mention that uh, I'm a big interrupter. You know, I don't really know how to interview people, so instead I just talk to them. And when I talk to people in a non-interview setting, I interrupt them all the time, so I'm going to do it to you. I just got a pet a set of braille playing cards because my son got into poker and I wanted to play poker with him. And although I'm not totally blind, it's really hard for me to see the cards. So I thought, well, I'll get these uh, braille cards. And even though I don't really read braille, I, I, you know, I could learn just like the numbers, right? And Q and K and stuff. Um, and what I noticed is, man, are those cards thick because those little bumps add up. So when you say it's thick as a phone book, should I imagine that it's got as many pages as a phone book? Very or? much. Yeah. Exactly what you should imagine. All right, so it's it's like a thousand pages or something. It's not just that it's like fifty pages, but they're no, thicker because no. of the braille. No, all right, keep going. Lots of pages, lots of content, and this was really a revolutionary moment for me because I never thought that I'd be able to build a Lego set on my own ever. It was one of those things. It's like blind people 
blind people aren't going to be doing racing competitions in monster trucks. They're not going to be doing something like that. Although, although if you and I did do a racing competition, we should totally do it in monster trucks. Because, oh, absolutely. I mean, if we try to do it in like Formula One vehicles, we're sure to be dead. Whereas in monster trucks, you know, maybe a little protection. And those More high durable wheels. solution. Yeah, definitely. exactly. Exactly. And it was one of those things where you know that you can't do it as a blind person. But after I built this first set, I was really in awe because, I mean, my friends have been doing this for years. In elementary school, my friends were very big into Lego. And that was, that was what we talked about. We lived and breathed it. And whenever they build a new set, they said, hey, I just built the Hogwarts castle. And I'd say, oh, wow, in amazement, I'd say, oh, can you, can you tell me about it? And they're like, well, it has this feature and that feature and this and that. And I said, oh, that's great. How did you build it? And there was this long, awkward pause. Mm. And they said, well, we, we looked at the pictures and we followed the directions and we built it. And it was interesting because that was one thing that I had never been able to do because the instructions are all pictures. There's not a word of text in them. And this is Lego policy, right? Because this way they can sell the products globally without having to you know, translate the instructions into all the languages. And, and, and I guess just to be sort of very universal, I'm sure in their mind, this is actually a way of making things more accessible. Oh, very much. In their mind, it's a very easy solution to globalize their product and to get it out to as many people as possible. And I built this first set and I thought, okay, I've built one set. Now I need to get this out to as many blind kids as possible because I knew that this had had such a profound impact on me. I wanted to give that impact to other blind kids because they didn't have friends in their lives who would make these instructions for them. And it is a rare talent to be able to make these instructions. And it's a gift and it's a gift that I was given and it's a gift that I wanted to give to other people. Uh, let, let me pause you for more sec. So uh, remind me, um, were you always blind? Are you blind since birth? Or it, did it come along later? Yes, blind since birth. Blind since birth. And when your friends built the Hogwarts castle in Lego, would you like sort of feel it to get a sense of what that castle was all about or not? And, and I guess maybe you could share because, you know, I, I have retinitis pigmentosis and I, I said I was, as a kid, I was just nearsighted and then it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And now I consider myself blind, although I can still see a tiny, tiny bit. So are you feeling the Hogwarts castle? And if so, do you have like... These were all tales that were told to me. Mm -hmm. I never felt the sense. You don't get to feel those sets. Okay. No, but I looked them up on Amazon. Uh -huh. I realized that a way to be able to experience these sets without actually having them and being able to build them on your own was reading customer reviews on Amazon. Interesting. Because the people who wrote these reviews were very descriptive because they were real Lego fans. And so they wanted to really ensure that the people who bought these sets knew what they were getting. Mm -hmm. So they would describe all the different Lego people and talk about their face, faces and their torsos and the exclusive coloring of the three-by-one corner brick or any random thing. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing because it was really an opportunity to engage with the Lego content, even though I couldn't build it on my own. Mm -hmm. And the people who I could build it with were my parents. Trouble is, parents are busy. And so we'd start a set and then we'd have to run and do stuff and go to class and whatever. And then it would be partially built and then it would end up in the parts bin mm -hmm. because I just wanted to use the the alligator man from it and right. the rest of it just kind of went and was never seen again. And when I built that first Lego set on my own, it was interesting because I'd been secretly drooling over the set online, but I was sure that I'd never be able to build it because 
blind people, pictures, instructions, you know, not, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that I wanted to give this to other people, Lila and I, we spent many, we spent years just amassing instructions, just buying different sets, creating text-based instructions for them. And she wrote out the instructions and I would build the sets and check the instructions for errors to make sure that they were very easily comprehensible yeah. and that anyone could use them. And then we started a website, legoforthablind.com, mm-hmm. and we put all of our instructions up there, and 30, 40 sets are up there now. That's phenomenal. And so uh, do you have a sense as to, as to how many kids are taking advantage of this and building Lego without being able to see? Mm, I don't have particular numbers, but I know that hundreds, just because the amount of emails just that I've emails. Done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And probably for everybody who emails you, there's probably like 50, 50 others who don't, you know, who are using it and not. I mean, most of the websites I enjoy, I don't then email the people to thank them, even though I probably should. And then from a expansion standpoint, at first we were, it was just two of us in the living room. And the trouble is we got bombarded with all these requests. These blind people were thrilled and they said, Hey, I have, I have the Hogwarts castle that's 6,500 pieces. Could you make that accessible? And I was like, uh, I'm sorry, you can't do it. Because this was not our job. We were doing this just in our spare time. Mm-hmm. And Lita was working full time and I was in school full time. And we just couldn't do it. And I thought, you know, it would be real darn good to get this stuff out to Lego so that we could just give it to Lego. And then they could make their own instructions. Mm-hmm. And at first I reached out to them and with these big companies, you need to know who to go to. Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote customer service and customer service said, you know, this is wonderful. But what you don't realize is that we are just customer service. Uh-huh. We can't help you. And then I thought, okay, let's think, let's think bigger. And I had a friend in the lifelong kindergarten program at the MIT media lab. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him and I said, Oh, well, you know, I have this project Lego for the blind. And he said, yeah, I have a friend. He just moved to Denmark two weeks ago and he's working at Lego. Hmm. I'll put you in touch. He just finished up at MIT and now Lego took him and I'll give you his email. And he gives me this guy's email and I write this guy and this guy says, oh yes, I'll connect you to the head of our new projects division, mm-hmm. the creative play lab. It's like Lego's version of DARPA with all right. their mysterious <laughs> new projects and get in touch with this guy. And miraculously, this guy, Olaf Garrison. That's where that Lego murder bot was created, I think, right? Exactly. <laughs> and so this guy who I get put in touch with, he's incredibly passionate. And it's amazing because these the people at Lego owe me nothing. Mm-hmm. I am a guy who made a thing and came to them hoping that this thing would grow. But the energy of the Lego people was just amazing because mm-hmm. they took these instructions and they were able to really globalize and streamline the creation process. And so they worked with the Austrian Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the Austrian Institute created kind of computer-based algorithms using artificial intelligence that would tell you, be able to parse out text from the pictures. And would be able to create lists of parts and talk about where these parts went. And then that was run through a person who would check those check the information the ai gave and make it more human mm-hmm. more entertaining more thrilling to the child who's building and lego made this process so eloquent and so so streamlined that now they're releasing they released very recently they released text-based instructions for of their recent sets mm-hmm. and that went very well because 
it really got blind people engaged with it and got sighted people engaged with it. I got emails from sighted children, just random sighted children who said, yeah, mm-hmm. this is really cool. And I'm really glad you're doing this. And then Lego really went a step further. Now they are going to release text-based instructions for 25 to 30 of their new sets. And those will hopefully be out in the spring. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. And, and, and are they doing the text in multiple languages? I mean, that, that must be Currently a big hassle. they're doing English, but mm-hmm. they're working on multilingualization as well. And of course, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, AI translation gets better and better too, maybe that problem becomes less severe once they're able to to get it working in uh, in, in one language. And so, um, so uh, you know, are you still building? Mm, very much. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about uh, music. Do you want to tell us about how what you do in music and how you got there and so forth? Sure. So I'm a composer and a countertenor and an accordionist. And I kind of sing all types of music, um, classical and musical theater, Yiddish music from the 30s, whatever. I study at the New York Conservatory, and whatever professors make me sing, I sing. So tell me about counter-tenor. Is this like, uh, you know, spy versus counter-spy? You and, the, you and the tenors do battle or something? What, what is, what is, what is, I mean, I've always heard, you know, this sort of thing, uh, counter-whatever, and, 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 um, and I guess, and, and, well, fill us in. It's it's when a man sings in their head voice. So okay. basically, if you think about how Mickey Mouse speaks, Mickey Mouse talks up here because he's a cartoon character. Yeah. And the entire singing voice is placed not here where you would normally speak, but up here. Ah. And that's basically where you sing. Okay. And it was a range of voice that was used very much during the Baroque period and composers like Purcell and Handel really enjoyed it because at that time there were castrati, people who were mm-hmm. castrated for the purpose of their glorious singing voices. Right. And now they're thankfully no more, but sometimes you still get people who are able to sing in this higher register. So okay, so so do ah uh, except in, in the in the non countertenor register, like the regular singing way, if if you uh, Okay, and then do the counter tenor one again. Okay, and so um, and so when you when you sing in uh, in an ensemble or, or what have you, almost all your singing is in that higher register. Yes, I see. And and so you don't like practice the other part too. Like, do. like you want to master both. It uh, depends. It depends on what kind of music you're singing, because mm-hmm. I do a lot of <clears throat> kind of my main the main voice is that higher voice, just because. A lot of the repertoire that's written for countertenor has very specific kind of technical requirements. You need a very solid technique to write, um, sorry, not to write, to sing that sort of thing. But if I want to do pop or musical theater, Mm -hmm. or the musical theater stuff that I personally write, I use both voices. Okay. Because that's a range that is much broader from an expression standpoint. And then you, you you can squeak and you can not squeak. Squeak and rumble. I see. And so the, the counter, so, when, so sometimes you see people's voice described as contralto. Is that short for counter alto or does that have nothing to do with that? Yes. Contraltos are the female versions of counter tenors. I see. Counter tenors okay. are male, contraltos are female. Okay. And those are people who are slightly lower than altos. Oh, wait, a contralto is lower than Pardon. Alto. I take, ah, I take that back. Sorry. These are. I would thought that a contralto would be the. 
sorry, I take that back. Of also. Do I have it mixed up? I I think sorry, I take it back. You're right. So the um, the counter tenor is the high version of the tenor. Tenor and the contralto is the high version of the alto. Yes, got it. And so um, this is super interesting. So are there um, are there who who if anybody could you tell us about that that even a philistine like me would recognize either in uh, the um, uh, either in the classical world or opera or what have you or in the pop world uh, who sing in either counter tenor or contralto styles? If we think of the lead singer of the Bee Gees, mm-hmm. blanking on his name, um, he never sang in his low voice. He sang in his high voice. Yeah. He didn't say, oh, staying alive. Right. That would be weird. True. No, he sang yeah. higher. Yes. And he is an example of a counter tenor in pop music. Very interesting, right? I, 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 out of uh, the, the brothers Gibb, uh, uh, Maurice, Robin, and uh, Barry. Barry uh, exactly. I, is Barry the is Barry the lead there? Yeah. They, uh, Barry, Barry, Barry Gibb sang lead. Okay, and and of course uh, their younger brother Andy had a uh, had a successful uh, disco career of his own. And um, so uh, now, is this the same thing as falsetto or something different? This is a fortified falsetto. So basically, when people generally use their falsetto because they don't work on it, it's kind of it's usually kind of breathy. Mm-hmm. And that's just your falsetto generally. But okay. countertenors use kind of a more a more fortified sound because they've been working on their technique. They use their air in a more controlled way to get a fuller, yeah. richer sound. Nice power. Yeah. Because that's what they've been working. Right. And even in kind of pop situations, we've seen that. Um, it's easy to sing things in the uh, in the kind of fortified falsetto. I don't know. For example, there's a in Jesus Christ Superstar. For example, there's an aria called Gethsemane Olson. I only want to say mm-hmm. in which uh, Jesus laments his situation. Right. And there's a very high note that's taken at one point, which I can't take now because I'm not warmed up. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. it's it's almost soprano territory and the way people sing it, you can either scream it or you can sing it with kind of a fortified falsetto by sending the sound into a certain space mm-hmm. in your nose slash forehead. And that provides you a very, um, a very energized sound. Mm-hmm. And basically the, the fortified falsetto can be used for anything. It can be used for pop. It can be used for classical. And the only reason countertenors use it as opposed to a normal falsetto is because it gives them more, more control over the kind of sound that they want to make. That's uh, very interesting. And so you and and so was it natural to you to uh, do this this sort of the head the head thing as you describe it? Like, is that something that you knew how to do and then got taught to do better, or is that something that like you never sang that way and 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 and, and so how do you discover that this is uh, a kind of singing that you might have a gift for? I started out as a very bad tenor. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, and the trouble is, as a boy soprano, which is who I was, mm-hmm. you have no separation between your head voice and your chest voice. Okay, It's all one voice, just because that's how things work. Yeah. And then my voice started breaking. And I thought to myself, well, I have two choices. I can either continue being a not very good tenor, mm-hmm. or I can switch to counter tenor where my chances for success would be higher. And where generally I am able to perform better because 
my voice did not break completely, meaning that I still had the higher register intact. I see. Usually what happens is when people's voices break, they lose the flexibility in their higher vocal range, which I did not. And so I went to a teacher who was Norma, Norma Giustiani, a wonderful opera coach, and she was versed in teaching countertenors. And she taught me a technique which was very durable, which got me through the voice break without any adverse effects. Mm-hmm. And if somebody wanted to, you know, sort of try this at home and, and, and try to get their head voice going or whatever, is there is there some basic thing that they would attempt or practice or whatever? Or is it just like, you know, you really have to spend hours with a genius teacher like Norma just you know, to, to pull that off? I mean, I think the first, first thing is starting with pure vowels. Mm-hmm. So... Let's say we like we want a simple exercise. We just want to go. Um, I use E's because they're easiest, and we kind of breathe in. And when we breathe in, we want to breathe in through our nose and our mouth, so we feel the uh, soft palate rising, and mm-hmm. that's going to help us because that's going to ensure that our sound is free. That's going to release tension in the throat, and that's going to ensure that our air, when we sing, it goes not out through the mouth, but it goes up kind of where your mustache is and Mm -hmm. higher. Mustache slash cheekbones is where we want our sound to go. Because here's a sound in the mouth. It it sounds like a goose being tortured. Uh But (laughs) it sounded great to me, just for the record. But if we put it (laughs) up into the cheekbones, And the second sound has much more life to it. It's much more rounded and vibrant because we sent it to a different place. So first thing you want to do is um, we'll, we'll do B because that's the easiest thing to do. Breathe in so our ribs go out. B, B, B. And then we just keep going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to make sure that we, the higher we go, um, we need to make sure that we don't spread our sound. So let's say I'm going a little higher. That's not something we want. We want to keep it E throughout the entire kind of throughout the entire exercise. Even when we get higher, we want it to still be an E because once we make it an E, our sound spreads mm-hmm. and it becomes flat and lifeless and it's piercing to the ears. It's painful. Mm-hmm. But if we focus on an E throughout that whole run, it's less piercing because we were thinking about an E that whole time. I see. So basically, um, vowels and a focus on sending the vowels to the cheekbones and kind of mustache cheekbone area, making sure that the sound is not in the mouth. And the trouble with singers can never hear themselves. Right. So always record yourself and listen back. As singers, I mean, your larynx is going to go up whether you like it or not. Generally, we try to, some singers claim, oh, it's important to sing with a low larynx and try and push it down. And I think the key is kind of, how do I say this? Keeping track of where it is and what it's doing. In the sense that a very high larynx can lead to a very choked sound. Like, ah. No one wants to sound like a dying hamster. But uh, I think as the singer learns how to breathe, then their larynx enters a state where it is 
kind of in the right place in the vocal tract, not too low, not too high, but it's not so high that you sound like a dying hamster. Yeah. And so that's why you need to develop these other techniques for controlling pitch, I guess, right? Exactly. Because because if I do, I can't resist the Russell Tompkins, right? Dude. If I want to do the beginning, it's like, right? If I sing in my normal register, it says, there's a spark of magic in your eyes. But if I do Russell Tompkins style falsetto, it sounds like this. There's a spark of magic in your eyes. And you can just feel that, that go up. But it's the only way I can get remotely to that pitch is to is for my larynx to get pulled up, and and I guess you know you, you have all these other techniques to control your pitch. I mean, larynx will go up naturally, so it getting pulled up is fine. Yeah, it's not like I'm thinking about it, right? It just happens yeah, yeah. when I decide to sing that way. And it's interesting how you look at different pop singers and think about how they sing, mm -hmm. and sometimes you see very high larynxes are used for a certain type of very forced sound. Um, which I can try and demonstrate here. I will move away from the microphone. Yeah. Beware, listeners, beware. <laughs> so I think, um, uh, let's, sorry, I'm just trying to think of how to demonstrate this best. Um, uh, mm. I mean, that's a high larynx. That's a high larynx sound. Mm -hmm. But it can be used in pop contexts with no problem because in certain songs, you need that drama. You don't mm -hmm. want to sing it operatically. You don't want to go, ah, because that's not what the song requires. Mm -hmm. And you need some of that grit and glory to it. And that's where a very high larynx would be useful. As you say, this is a Philly soul band. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course, they need a high larynx because there's no soul. Without yeah. high larynx, there's yeah. no <laughs> there's no soul. It's all very very cut and dry without a high larynx. So, so do you want to you want to tell us about some singers you admire, either again from the pop world, from classical, from musical theater? Are there are there people when you listen, you're like, oh, you know, that maybe a person like me might not even appreciate why what they did was so special. Andreas Scholl is a masterful countertenor, mm. and he's one of the best, if not the best, countertenor. What makes him so wonderful is not only the way that he sings, but the way that he structures what he sings. Mm -hmm. He always tells stories whenever he sings pieces. You really know that you're in for a ride because he... The way he builds things and crafts things, and he he just makes he sounds like a god mm. because he is able to really really build these pieces and make sure that the audience is engaged with him and mm. that the audience is really thrilled by what he does, and I think that's really valuable. Also, Philippe Yaruski, who sings a little bit higher, he's a French countertenor, mm -hmm. and he does some wonderful work with Vivaldi. And the Vivaldi rep is hellish for countertenors just because it's very long phrases and very high notes. Mm -hmm. And he does them with such gusto and zeal and commitment. These are basically the two ends of the countertenor spectrum. Mm -hmm. 
counting on David to uh, to incorporate a, a couple of clips here so that people can really appreciate what you're talking about. Tell us about being a music student. So you're studying at New England Conservatory, yes? Yep. Yes. And and should I think of this as like at what at what point in your education is this like a college degree? Is this I'm graduate here. school? You're I'm junior in college. Okay. And so so tell us about that experience because we may have listeners who are who are interested in music as a career, and I think a lot of people don't really understand like whether music is something that they're supposed to go to college for or whether they're supposed to just pursue it on their own. Like what, what are your studies like? Do you have to take English and physics and all that other stuff? Or do you learn physics, but you learn physics through the concept of how physics is important in music or, or are all your classes sing, sing, sing? Take us through what it means to be at New England Conservatory. I'm in the Contemporary Improvisation Program there, which mm-hmm. is a program that's focused on people who play different types of instruments from a world music standpoint. Okay. So we have musicians from Iran. We have musicians from Persia. We have musicians from India. And all of these people, it's really valuable because all of them provide different musical experiences. And I do CI in Contemporary Improv because... Um, I play accordion, okay. and that's kind of an instrument that they they value because mm-hmm. I can then do things like Brazilian music and uh-huh. Persian music and Armenian music and music which is focused on that kind of sound and needs that kind of sound. And so basically, my days are spent. NEC does offer liberal arts courses, so mm-hmm. we do have English if we want it. We have German, French, Italian, various languages that we can take. And there are physics classes that are voice-based. You, know, mm-hmm. you can learn about vocal anatomy if you wish. Thankfully, it's not required. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> I'm not a science person, so the less science for me, the happier I am. Okay. But it's really valuable because you get a massive amount of musical training. Mm-hmm. Not only do you learn how to read music and write music and write music for different kinds of musicians and different types of instruments, but you also get to learn about the history of music and study various composers and what they've created in depth. Mm -hmm. And that's really valuable because then you're able to enrich your own compositional abilities by studying the people who've come before you, which I think is really valuable. As someone who writes musical theater, I went through a crash course in musical theater. Mm -hmm. And I studied Sondheim lyrics extensively, and I studied... Rodgers and Hammerstein, and I studied all these different musical theater people because mm-hmm. you need to learn from the greats before you can start writing things. Mm-hmm. And um, there is music theory where they teach you what chords sound good and why they sound good and why they sound bad mm-hmm. and when not to use them because the devil will come. <laughs> the tritone used to be the, the devil's chord in huh. the Middle Ages. And people were afraid that if they played it, the devil yeah. would come and take right. them away. What, what what tone? So tritone means what? What chord does somebody play on a piano or something? Uh, augmented fourth or a diminished fifth. Right. <laughs> it's Interesting. And so basically, I here's what I think: music school is very much what you make of it. Mm-hmm. I personally split my efforts between writing music and classical singing because um, classical singing provides a uh, kind of a structure mm-hmm. and the technique that they teach is really solid and the repertoire they teach is everything from tigers with stomach aches to um, Julius Caesar conquering 
Egypt, mm-hmm. and it's very whatever you want, you can learn. And I think that's really valuable for singers to be able to engage with different pieces and different languages by different composers of different time periods. Mm-hmm. But also, the contemporary improvisation department itself is really valuable because it teaches you about these different cultures, about the music of them, but also the history of these different places. Mm-hmm. You can take a history of Jewish music, for example. Mm-hmm. You can take a history of jazz. And these classes are intense in the sense that you leave these classes with a much more energized understanding of the material that you're performing than when you came into them. So, you know, we're, we're achieving one of my main goals for this podcast, which is to, you know, talk to what I would describe as, you know, super interesting people who just happen to be blind, right? And, and not, you know, dwell on blindness the whole way. But I can't leave the topic of music without talking about the fact that, you know, there's a perception on the part of many people. I, look, it's certainly, a, I would say, a fact that uh, a lot of musicians are blind compared to, you know, many other jobs. And uh, some people feel that being blind, uh, you know, causes one to uh, be better at music for some reason or in some way. Uh, And um, I wonder if you have any comments. I mean, I would argue that I think the amount of people with perfect pitch in the blind community is fairly large. Uh, I don't have any statistics, but I remember hearing somewhere that there is a large percentage of blind people have it, which I think um, may increase the chances of blind musicians. But I think also because blind people are so hearing-oriented, music is kind of a natural pathway because mm-hmm. you don't need to see. If you if you find a piano and learn how to play it, then then it doesn't matter. You could have tentacles. Who cares? <laughs> it might help to have tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> you could be the first piano-playing blind octopus. It's yeah. irrelevant because be. your musicianship comes first. The blindness comes later. And I think that the fact that blind people have to rely on their hearing so much to survive generally. I think that music is just an outgrowth of of hearing and of interpreting sound, and music is just an artful interpretation of sound. The um, uh, you're, you're mentioning the piano remind me that I wanted to come back to the question of the accordion. So tell me how you got into accordion, and why don't you address the fact that uh, people sometimes like to make fun of the accordion? Oh, it makes perfect sense that they like to make fun of the accordion. It's a ridiculous instrument if you think about it. But, I mean, it looks like a giant air conditioner strapped to your chest. Who wouldn't want to make fun of an accordion? Um, but the accordion was a complete accident. So I had a friend, and he said, hey, I have this accordion, and I don't need it, and I don't play it, because I play the button accordion, and I have a piano accordion. There are two different kinds of accordions, and I don't need one of them, and I will give it to you and teach you how to play it. Would yeah. you like that? And mm-hmm. I said, heck yeah, I'd yeah. like that. And so I I learned from this mathematician working at Google how to play accordions. <laughs> and then I went to a New England conservatory, and it was very interesting because the accordion professor there, Ted Reichman, is a wonderful accordionist, and he comes from a more free jazz improvisatory background. And it was very interesting to get his insight because his methods of playing are very different than the um, kind of more classical way that I was initially taught the accordion. Mm-hmm. And I was taught with, I don't know, French waltzes and tangos by Pizzola. Mm-hmm. And this guy is making contemporary kind of free jazz on the accordion based on people like Anthony Braxton. And it's very interesting because the way he creates melodies on the accordion and chord progressions and just uses it as a full-blown orchestra mm-hmm. is very different than classical people, but it's absolutely valid because he uses the accordion fully and completely and just the way that Ted Reichman is able to 
kind of engage with the instrument. He's a pianist and accordionist, and the way he is able to treat the piano as an accordion, and the accordion as a piano is really fascinating because he uses a lot of jazz language with the accordion, but it's not the kind of jazz language that we might hear from jazz accordionists like Art Van Dam or Leon Sash. Mm -hmm. It's jazz that is much more free-flowing, much more kind of much more created on the fly. It doesn't fall into the conventions of swing or funk or fusion. It's very much its own entity, which I find fascinating that this guy has been able to craft his own entity when it comes to jazz accordion. And it's really, it was really valuable studying with him because he really, he really showed the diversity of the accordion, not just an instrument of polkas, mm -hmm. but something to go beyond the polkas into much more contemporary spheres. And do you do you compose on the accordion? I do. And, and if so, are we going to get from you the the first ever um, accordion based musical on Broadway? Yes, you might. You might. <laughs> a lot of my stuff is for accordion and voice, and I have a a humorous um, song cycle called the Hooligans Handbook, mm. and the song cycle is there's a a Russian children's poet who wrote all these poems about the best ways for kids to misbehave. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, my parents are from Russia. I speak Russian. So why not translate these poems into English and turn them into musical theater songs, which I did. Mm -hmm. And it was really a lot of fun writing that cycle because it was very much focused on the kind of acrobatics of the accordion and the singing along with it. It mm -hmm. was very fun to write the, the different parts for the left hand and the right hand and how the voice interacts with them and it was just really fun building out these these very goofy children's poems coming up on dangerous vision i find that traveling is very stressful i mean you, you're a business professor you teach this sort yeah. of stuff you know what I mean. but first life as a blind person by executive director of the massachusetts association for the blind and visually impaired sassy outwater right today i want to talk about asking for help from friends or family and some of the stuff that comes up around that. I don't care if you are a fence post, a shrub, a tree, a human being, sighted, blind, old, young, a car in a driveway, a dog, a cat, or a porcupine. At some point in your life, you are going to have to ask for help with something. It's not one of the laws of thermodynamics, but it should be because it's inevitable. I don't care if you are inanimate or animate, you need help from some other source to get done what you were put onto this earth to do. At least that's how life works in my little corner of the planet. If it works another way for you, please write to me and let me know and I will amend my statement on the next podcast. But since that's not going to happen, let's talk about help. This is just life as a blind person. This is just my daily existence. Some people have no problem asking for help and have a good support system around them. Some people don't. Some people feel uncomfortable asking for help. And some people have a support system that is waiting for them to ask for help and gets frustrated that they don't. And some people have a support system that when they do ask for help, the support system or the people within that support system may feel put upon, burdened, or like the person should be able to accomplish that task on their own and the person isn't. I'm not going to get into why it's justified or not justified because there is one person who can make that decision and that is the person who is asking for help. And I wanna kind of pause and just validate that it is okay to ask for help when you need it, but be mindful of that person. Be mindful of where they are. And if they say no, let them say no. No is a good word. No is a positive word. 
That does not mean that there won't be other sources of support for you. It just means it can't come from that source today. And I want to pause and also acknowledge that sometimes you need that help and it needs to be right then. Make sure that you're honest about the level of help that you need, that you're comfortable and that there's not shame in your ask. Don't guilt trip them and don't shame yourself. Being able to put out an ask that does not have guilt or shame attached to it on both sides is how you do this. Being aware that somebody may feel guilt for not being able to do something for you or that you may feel shame for having to ask. For Life as a Blind Person, I'm Sassy Outwater-Wright. So um, so we always ask our guests at the end uh, if they have a book recommendation or if not book, it can be uh, TV, music, other media that, that you want to recommend. I ask for books because I really like books and I, for many years, couldn't read books because I either, either Bookshare didn't exist yet or for a while it existed and I didn't know about it. Um, and, uh, and, so, and I found books on tape too slow and we didn't have you know, Audible, which they now can be sped up easily. So for, for a long time, I could only read stuff online and so forth and uh, really missed out on reading lots of entertaining books. And now I read tons of them and I'm uh, always looking for recommendations. So if you have a book where, you know, you like read it and you're like, wow, I can't wait to read that book again. That's the kind of thing I'm looking for. Something you really enjoy. There's a really interesting book I'm reading called Never Split the Difference. Yeah. And this is a book by an FBI hostage negotiator. Mm-hmm. And it kind of chronicles his, it's kind of a memoir and it chronicles his life as a hostage negotiator, but then it really teaches you how to negotiate. Huh. And I think it's really interesting as an entrepreneur with a VR for the blind startup, yeah. I think it's really important to really kind of engage with the people around you, but really understand what people mean and how to, how to squeeze them like fruit in a juicer and get the most out of them. I mean, you, you're a business professor. You teach this sort yeah. of stuff. You know yeah, do, you have, do, you have a, do you have a tip to recommend? I, I'm going to check this book out. But, uh, the, the person was talking about the importance of repeating the last sentence of what other people have said. He was talking about a case where um, he, some people had been kidnapped and were mm-hmm. in uh, the, the driver of a getaway car had been arrested and was being interviewed. And he said, well, I was, I was on 4th and don't know, 17th Street. And the hostage negotiator asked, wait, you were on 4th and 17th Street? And this getaway driver just broke down and gave them a bunch of information that they didn't even know. He wasn't even asked to give it, but he was because he felt very questioned. And he felt like he had to really, really engage with these negotiators on another level. And so he revealed all this information that they were like, whoa, 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 we didn't know that. Slow, slow down, slow down. And it's just really interesting high stakes situations like that i mean repetition can really make it or break it for you Mm -hmm. the uh so i this isn't quite on point but it reminds me of a story i read years ago um uh by the journalist uh the great uh uh, writer and editor uh james fallows and he said his best trick as a journalist as an interviewer is that if you're trying to get on someone you know tell you stuff they're being cagey just act really bored Right and and just like just like really boring, and they're gonna want to be interesting, and 
And so then they'll start to tell you juicy stuff that they didn't want to tell you because they feel guilty that they're boring you. You know, Randy, here's the trouble. You're just too enthusiastic for your own good. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Everyone can tell that I'm fascinated to be talking to them. The, uh, so tell us a little about the uh, startup, and, uh, and, then, and then we can wrap. So, Thank you very so, much. Uh, tell us so, what you're working on. We're Project Daredevil, and we create virtual reality experiences for the blind. And we're building a motion-simulating helmet that affects your vestibular system. Part of your body that controls your balance. Are you going to get sued by the comic book people for the use of the name? No, no, no. I'm working (laughs) with the comic people. I'm not going to get sued by them. This initially started because I wanted to give blind people access to comic books. And my dad would read double comics as a kid. I thought it was really cool and really ironic that the only blind superhero is in a medium that's completely inaccessible to blind people. It's, uh, it's frustrating. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because they did, obviously, superheroes. One of the things that got them really big was radio, uh, you know, radio shows for superheroes uh, about, about superheroes, you know, The Shadow and all these various things. But even like Superman and so forth were on radio at one time. Um, so maybe we should bring that back along with you. But tell us, so tell us what you're going to do in virtual reality, because virtual reality sounds like a sighted medium to me, but it sounds like you're going to change that. I think it depends on how you approach it. We're approaching it from an auditory and a um, kind of haptic standpoint. So we, our helmet uses spinning gyroscopes to affect your sense of balance. So mm-hmm. if you're sitting in a chair, and this is paired with a... 3D sound radio drama based on the Daredevil comics. Mm -hmm. And so if Daredevil is jumping from rooftop to rooftop, you feel that impact as he lands because the vestibular system is being altered. If he does a flip, you feel like you just did a flip. He's falling off a building. You feel that sensation of a sinking stomach. Hmm. And our goal is really Yeah, I mean, your vestibular, think about elevators. Let's say we go up in an elevator, right. and we're not quite at the top, but the entire elevator car kind of clunk, and it jolts downwards. Right. And as it jolts downwards, it's not just the fact that it is jolting downward. It's your vestibular system telling you, hey, I think we're falling, man. Mm-hmm. I think we're is, falling. It only takes a couple inches to give you that feeling. Exactly. That's so interesting. Because yeah. these yeah. Um, tiny balls, if we think of um, these are... Uh, accelerometers in our ears. And if we think of them as a tiny ball in a bunch of fluid in a tube in our ear, there's only a tiny push that's needed for for us to think that we are moving or not. Just let's say, for example, that I stood you up and I spun you around. I spun you, I spun you, I spun you, and then I let go. Even though the ground was not spinning, you would feel a sense of vertigo because you had been spun around and your uh, inner gyroscopes inner vestibular system was confused as to where it should be. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of using that concept to get rid of vertigo. Part of the reason virtual reality has been having a lot of problems and the reason they've been having these problems is because the body does not feel what the eye sees. Mm-hmm. The eye sees a character falling, the body doesn't feel it. The brain panics, and then you get dizzy. I see. And so we're hoping to mitigate that dizziness by really adding a very bodily experience, a very corporeal experience to to virtual reality. Now you can have a visual element too, so that yes. people can get all three. Definitely. Know, the feel, the feel, we're, uh, sound. We're yeah, working on um, video game integration mm-hmm. so that this could be used with, for example, there was a Spider-Man game that came out for the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Uh, very successful, very interesting from a storytelling standpoint and also from a gameplay standpoint because kind of the key aspect of gameplay was swinging around New York and doing a lot of 
acrobatics and aerial maneuvers. And that is a perfect integration point for this helmet. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever wanted to feel like Spider-Man, this would be... Yeah, this would be and, 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 it, and uh, I can say with uh, some confidence that I have, and, and uh, how can anyone not want to feel like Spider-Man? You know, I mean, I mean that notion of like swinging, swinging through the city. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very alluring. There's a notion of freedom there. One yeah. that I think would be especially um, kind of especially relaxing to those who are blind, just mm-hmm. because there is so much stress in daily life in mm-hmm. navigating, in making sure you don't get hit by a car, or break a leg, or whatever. Exactly. Whereas if I could just fly on a web over the city, I wouldn't have to worry at all. Very about much. It. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I I'm always worried when I uh, I don't always give a book recommendation along with the the, the guests, but I but I try to, and, and but I'm always worried that it's one that I've mentioned before because it's just hard to keep track. And, and I like to pick a book, not like plan ahead and say, oh, here's a book I should recommend, but just one that comes out of the conversation. And so, if you're interested in um, in in comic books and, and superheroes and related matters, I have to ask if you've read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Oh, I've heard it's a wonderful book. It's, I Quite possibly the best book ever written by anybody at any time. Um, I mean, you absolutely must read it. I I, I just reread it for the fourth time, um, and uh, like three weeks ago, and it was as maybe as magnificent as the first time. It's so perfect and wonderful. I just it's it's just hard to believe a human being wrote it, and um, and uh, it's um, it's about uh, two kinds about lots of things, but it's mostly about two cousins who become uh, comic book writers and illustrators uh, back in the the golden days of uh, of that idiom back in the in the forties and the lives they lead and and the things that happen around them, and it's just pure joyous entertainment on every back. I mean, obviously there, there are sad parts that occurs, you know, during world war two. So obviously there are going to be bad things happening to, to some people or what have you, but um, I just, it would be impossible for me to give it a recommendation as high as it deserves. It won the no, I mean, it's not the, the uh, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, so I'm not the only person who thought it was really good. I think everybody recognized that that was the best book of the year and probably the best book of many years. Um, obviously, people with different tastes for me should feel free to disagree. Uh, but um, but it sounds to me like your taste will probably be uh, similar enough to mine that you should uh, roam don't walk to get The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. And I will just add... That, as far as I can tell, everything Michael Chabon's ever written is uh, is magnificent. Um, I, uh, I, you know, he, he wrote a book called Wonder Boys early in his career, which they made a terrific movie out of. Um, he wrote a book called The Yiddish Policeman's Union. Uh, that's one of the best things I've ever read. That won the um, actually, I believe, won the Hugo Award for the best uh, science fiction novel. It's sort of an alternate history. It's not really science fictional in any way, but uh, it's an uh, incredible story uh, where he tries to envision what would have happened if instead of the state of Israel uh, being founded in in the Middle East as it was. Uh, an alternate plan, which was taken quite seriously at the time, to put it in southern Alaska, uh, had had uh, come to pass, and uh, and sort of thinks through how that would have played out. And uh, the detective story is incredible uh, story. He his nonfiction writing is incredible. He has a book called Manhood for Amateurs that I I super recommend. So uh, Michael Chabon, Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Everybody go read all that stuff. There's also an interesting kind of thrill to the whole comic book thing in the sense mm-hmm. that when I started Project Daredevil, my first point of contact was hunting down authors because these authors write comic book scripts. Mm-hmm. And I found comic book scripts and I realized that they were as detailed as film scripts and very, very close to the um, actual comics that are produced mm-hmm. because the writers tell the artist what to draw and then they draw it. 
Okay. And I thought, okay, I need to go hunting and find these people. And the kindness of these total strangers is incredible yeah. because like, I mean, people like Neil Gaiman, for example, uh-huh. major comic book writer, yeah. major writer. Just uh, one of my all-time favorite writers, absolutely. Very much. And I, I said, oh, can I can I adopt Sandman for blind people? And he said, yeah, sure. Oh, that's Go so ahead. great. That's so great. And yeah. these are total strangers. They don't owe me anything. But the fact that, or Mark Wade, for example. Wait, you have adapted Sandman for blind readers? No, I'm working on it. Because I ask because Sandman is basically the only thing I have not read, right? I mean, I'm just like, I've read American Gods like six times. I've read all these other things, but I've not read mythology. Yes. Oh, so great. Literally, literally, the professor and blogger Tyler Tyler Cowan says, you know, Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman, self recommending. You don't need to know anything more. That's the subject. That's the author must be read <laughs> very much. Yeah, I and yeah. I mean the the thing is also with something like Sandman, the thing is really getting to the publishers. The trouble is mm-hmm. that of course Gaiman is fine with it, but the comics yes. yeah, not so much. Yes, it's and very so, difficult. Well, you know, this is similar with the music. I was talking with a friend of mine who was uh, who was an attorney, and he was uh, looking at doing some podcasting and wanted to do music for the podcast. And of course, if you're you, you write it yourself, and then you're good to go. But if you're a normal person and you want to, um, you know, you want to use, uh, you know, I can see clearly now by Johnny Nash, you know, which I feel would be a fine, po- a fine uh, theme song for this podcast. Uh, there's like eight different types of rights. You have to have the mechanical rights, and you have to have the music rights, and you have to have the publishing rights. And like, there's basically no chance you can ever pull it off. You, you know, it's just like you can't get enough people to be on board. Um, and you can uh, just do a cover if you do a ridiculous sure. enough cover that makes it hard to. You still have to pay the publisher, but that might be affordable. I agree. I agree. Yeah. If you're not going to use the, if you do a cover, then then the payment is then then there's only one person you owe money. Yeah, don't take my legal advice, listeners. I'm just saying. It is my impression that you're correct that, that you'd be down to just the one, just the the ASCAP or BMI, the songwriting uh, credits would be all you owe money for. But yeah, it's a, it's an S. So uh, and yes, I'm sure you're right. Yeah, with uh, with DC Comics, that's got to be very challenging. But if you can pull as it off, I would really appreciate done, it. <laughs> as soon as the helmet's done, they are the first people I will go to. Wonderful, wonderful. Well. Listen, this was fantastic. Thank you so, so much for uh, coming over. We recorded this one live in person. Usually I record by phone, but it's wonderful because you're you're a, uh, a native uh, Massachusetts guy. We were able to do this in person, and um, and uh, it was just such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. So oh, yes. thanks so much for coming on Dangerous Vision. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown. 